Station 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm arts and culture columnist Tony Bravo, and welcome to the Datebook Podcast. To quote Stephen Sondheim, good times and bum times. Today's guest has seen them all, and my dears, he's still here. For almost 30 years, Mark Hustis has been affectionately known as the impresario of Castro Street for the dazzling programs he's produced at the neighborhood's epitomous theater that have included tributes to Hollywood legends like Debbie Reynolds, Sandra Dee, Tony Curtis, Kim Novak, Ann Miller, Patty Duke, and John Waters. That moniker is also the title of Hustis's memoir, The Impresario of Castro Street, an intimate show business memoir, which came out in book and ebook in June and is now available on audiobook on audible.com. Hustis spills the tea not only on his career as a producer in the book, but also talks about his years as an award winning filmmaker. His movie, Whatever Happened to Susan Jane, is considered a San Francisco cult classic. Co-founding San Francisco's first gay film festival, which eventually became the Frameline Festival, now considered the oldest and largest LGBTQ film festival in the country, and his years as an activist. Of note, the place where Hughes just got his film developed was the camera store owned by Harvey Milk in the 1970s. The book is as revealing about the author as it is about San Francisco's queer scene and the stars he has worked with. Hustis has also produced theater and remains an essential voice in the cultural scene of San Francisco. Please welcome Mark Hustis. Good times and bad times. I've seen them all, my dear. Thank you, Tony. (laughs) I'm still here. I had to do the Follies (laughs) reference. I had to, not only because it's appropriate, but Follies was a big deal for you growing up, right? It actually was a big deal. It was uh, probably about the third Broadway show I saw. I fell in love with it. I went to see it over and over again and became a stage Giordani for it. And both Alexis Smith and Dorothy Collins, better known as Dottie, um, got to know me. And I was there the closing night. And they both hugged me and told me how much they were going to miss me. And I must have been so cute at that point. I'm like swooning with jealousy. (laughs) Some of the original productions that you talk about seeing, including Follies, I mean, these are shows that people go, like, were you there? I, I was there. These are legendary. Well, I Saw Company was the first show that I ever saw. I was very lucky to have a high school teacher who was a real mentor to me. Um, His name was Robert Yesselman, and um, he was gay, although he wasn't out gay, and he basically taught me everything that I know. Um, Interestingly enough, a man named John Kalaki, who used to live here in the art scene, reviewed my book, and he said that he knew Mr. Yesselman from years after that, and that he was a great mentor to him. So it's amazing how that that kind of stuff, the common threads there. Yeah, kind of ganging it forward, if you will. And, and, you know, it just shows you how important high school educations are. It's like when I did my Romeo and Juliet event, I would call up and i say, can I please speak to the head of the drama department? And they're like, what drama department? Uh, You know, and it made me sad. No, that that is sad. I mean, arts education is part of what got both of us here behind these microphones. Absolutely. Without that, I wouldn't be um, I wouldn't be having these conversations. So, bravo to the teachers. Yeah, bravo to the teachers. Um, so, just 
let's start with the memoir. What let you know that this was time to get through your memoirs, <laughs> to, to quote the song again? Well, money. My, I got an inheritance from my brother that was completely out of the blue. Um, my brother was kind of a sad, lonely guy with no friends and um, sort of a real outsider. Some people think of gay people as outsiders, but he was like no one would talk to him or anything. And he he worked in Saudi Arabia as an electrical engineer, and one day he just died of a heart attack, and none of us knew he had money. And so um, all of a sudden we found out, and I inherited like a chunk of change from him. I have a joke in the book. I say if I knew he he had money, I would have been nicer to him, <laughs> which is kind of true. But um, – at that point, I was getting really sort of my, – my shows were not doing as well as, you know, people were like, oh, no, not another Tired Mark Houston show. And, um, you know, the audiences were dwindling. I wasn't making money. I wasn't enjoying it as much. And so I was like, well, maybe this is a you know, gift from my brother to change my life. And so I bought a cabin in the woods. I learned how to drive a car, got my license at the age of 58, um, and – decided to write this book, which took was a four-year journey. I mean, it was, and I hate to use that word journey because it's such a cliche, but it was four-year effort and hard work. And I wrote most of it up in the cabin in the woods. It's been really well-received. Um, you've got great scores on Amazon. You've gotten a lot of local press. Um, you've always gotten a lot of local press, though, from really the beginning of your time here, it feels like. Well, uh, I actually like journalists. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're the one. And and uh, to give you props, it's amazing. I'm so thrilled that there is somebody now working at your level who gets stuff. I mean, you, you really and, – and I'm not trying to be, you know – a brown nose or anything, but you really do get the, the rep- you know what, you've heard of people. Well, thank you. I mean, part of it is because I did grow up here and some of your events were really pivotal in my understanding and just my access to some of the types of people that you had as guests at these shows that you've done and that you've, as recently as I think a year ago, um, we're still doing at the Castro. I mean, I remember being at your Patty Duke event uh, was six or seven years ago now. Longer than that. Longer than that. Yeah. Um, which was a good one, and I adored her. Yeah, I liked almost every one of them. They were all really, you know, a couple of them weren't my favorites. And oh, we're gonna get to that. <laughs> okay, we're gonna get to that. <laughs> okay, that's what people want to hear. <laughs> I think one of the things, though, and you and I have known each other um, just from my having written about you, and from us just kind of sharing some of the same artistic interest in circles, is that I think we both really did start off as fans before um, you became a filmmaker an event producer, and before I became a journalist. I, I want to touch on that first. We did a little bit with the theater, but I, I think given your memoir, it would have been kind of amazing if you didn't go into show business. Um, let's talk a little bit about your parents. So your dad, Hank Hustis, was a video editor on a couple of big deal TV shows back in the day, including Hullabaloo, yes. right? If you actually go onto the YouTube and see the mamas and papas singing California Dreaming on Hullabaloo, he cut that one. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty well-known piece yeah, of footage. Yeah, it is a pretty well-known piece of footage. And Hullabaloo is back in the news again in recent months because... Because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There's yeah. a Hullabaloo sequence in it. 
It's such a great sequence. It's so kind of cringeworthy for DiCaprio, but I felt like it really captured what a lot of those YouTube clips look like. And that sh- th- th- those shows, both Hullabaloo and Shindig, were like precursors to MTV. I mean, and we absolutely loved them, and they had everybody on. So it was always a little, a little badge of honor when I'd see the credits roll in, in my Long Island home, and there was my dad's name. And so Hullabaloo was, and Shindig were shot in New York? That's where you grew up? Yes. I, I grew up in New York. He, he worked at 30 Rock. I used to go to the 30 Rock all the time to visit him. We'd walk down the, the, the hallway, and there would be Johnny Carson. And he'd go, oh, hi, Hank, which is my dad's name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We went to a lot of, like, game shows. I remember seeing Jeopardy with Bill Cullen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and so it was an exciting thing to do. And... And then my mom. Yeah, talk about your mom a little bit. Marisha. Marisha. My mother was a Lithuanian immigrant. She came from after World War II by herself, age unknown because her age kept changing throughout (laughs) the years. Like any good ex-stripper. I just interviewed Chara, so I know you're talking about (laughs) By the end, she was telling people that she had my brother when she was 11 years old. (laughs) As one does. As one does. But anyway, God bless her. She came to, to America by herself, learned the language in record time, was a very smart woman. Her and my dad met at a talent show in Plattsburgh, New York, where he was a radio engineer. And then she... She, she, she got knocked up, and she had to get married, and he married her, and that was my family. And what was her career, though? She, after she, she had she, she She really wanted to be a singer, but she also was, she was quite beautiful, and um, she loved to dance as well, so she became a dancer, and at first she did flamingo and belly dancing, and by the time of the end of her career, she was dancing go-go in, like, really sleazy bars in New Jersey, topless, so... It was an evolution, but she talked like this, and she always would sing us songs before we went to bed. And I have a great tape of hers that um, she sings me Lily Marlene, which is a Marlene Dietrich song, (laughs) and at the end she goes, with all my love forever and ever, mom. (laughs) And I'm like, ooh. She was not June Cleaver, it sounds like, from the way you've described her in the book. She was a very bizarre woman, um, really warm-hearted, but really troubled. um, And um, luckily, at the end of her life, she she was tough and she was abusive, physically abusive to us. But at the end of her life, she actually died uh, in um, Sacramento when she was in Auburn before that. And we really got to reconnect. And I really, there's a whole chapter in the book about how our relationship was reconciled and really grew and she was very special to me and I her blood runs thick through my veins revisiting the audiobook getting to listen to it this weekend after having um, read and reviewed the book uh, when it came out in June it really struck me that you could have had no better teacher for dealing with difficult Hollywood personalities as a filmmaker um Hollywood personalities as an event producer and drag queens in some sense with no di- with no disrespect to your mother then your mother she sounds like she was a drag queen really <laughs> she was a drag queen trapped in a woman's body yeah as uh, as some are yes and she always her one of her big lines was 
Mark, the only stars that exist are in heaven. Because every time I say, oh, my God, I love this person. They're a big star. She'd go, Mark. <laughs> and she'd say that one. Um, and it, it taught me humility. And um, she, believe it or not, even though she was a stripper, she was very strict and kind of conservative. And she really taught me manners and to, you know, to be respectful of other people, um, which I feel like that I've taken th- – into my career and um also we watched the million dollar movie in new york together all the time and Uh so we really bonded over these movies so i write in the book you know i actually saw like carol lindley in harlow with her and ann blythe and the 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 uh helen morgan story and stuff so when i wound up doing what i was doing which who knows how that happened you know to actually meet these people as a kid who I kind of worshipped was like eye-opening. It's this phenomenon that I think happens, especially in gay culture, where we give ourselves our own educations. And frequently it's, like for me, it was TCM. It's that million-dollar movie. It's finding those illicit magazines um, or pieces of literature. Um, It seems like you were always hungry for culture. Well, you have to be curious. I mean, that's what I like about you, too, is you're curious. People who are creative tend to be curious. They're not stuck or stagnant. The one thing I hate is, like, people constantly reminiscing about the the old days and how great they are and how how it's not so great now. It's like... As I say in the book, the uh, you know the the good old days are yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's like constant curiosity is really crucial for an artistic temperament. Absolutely, and it's a thread that's very strong in the book. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what eventually brought you out to San Francisco. So it connects actually to one of our legendary queer theater groups. Um, do you want to give us? Do you want to tell us which one? Well, I was I went to college in Binghamton, New York, and I absolutely detested it. It was really awful, and I had, there was a theater department. I was originally going to be an actor, um, and so I three and a half years into my education, I had to take gym classes as a, as to, to graduate. I'm like, no way, no, <laughs> I'm not taking those gym classes. No. So, so me and a friend of mine took the, um, green tortoise bus, which was legendary at the time to, uh, from New York to San Francisco. And I had been to Provincetown the summer before. And I was like this wild creature in Provincetown, big, big scarves dancing like Isadora Duncan wildly on the dance floor. Also a San Franciscan, by the way, Isadora. You got it. And this guy, Gregory, had come up to me and said, you know, you should go to San Francisco because you really fit in there. <laughs> <laughs> had and, you fit in many other places at that point in your life? No. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you what the city was like. And so I, um, I, I had a job for a little while, and I was on the bus one day, and this guy, Gregory, came up to me and goes, hi, remember me? I'm like, mm. And he goes, well, you know, we're doing a show, and you'd be great in our show. Why don't you come to this address? And I'm thinking, I don't have to audition or do anything. I'm like, is this a, just a ploy <laughs> to get me into bed or what? So I knock on the door. I get dressed up. I knock on the door, and this hippie comes out with, you know, he's like, oh, my God, you'd be great in our show. And next thing I know, it, I was in the show with the Angels of Light, who were an offshoot of the Coquettes. They right. were like the evolution from the Coquettes. 
And it was the greatest. I mean, I, I was in a show called Parasites Under the Bourgeoisie. And, and I was Say the title again. It's so great. Parasites Under the Bourgeoisie. Oh, <laughs> these the titles of the Cockettes and the, um, and, this, and the Angels of Light shows were so great. No, they were like Tennessee Williams. Yeah. And I was the first person on stage. The curtain comes up. And the audience goes wild. They didn't go wild for me. They went wild for the sets, which were, you know, cardboard cutout sets with lots of glitter, but they were fabulous. And by that time, I was completely hooked. And, you know, they really taught me a completely different way of seeing theater. Um, and real quickly, uh, the next thing I did was a character named Ellen Organ, who was after the Helen Morgan story with Dan Blythe. And um, I was so overly dramatic and so hyped up that there was a point where I had a bottle in my hand. I was supposed to take a swig, (laughs) took a swig. The bottle flew out of my hand, flew into the audience, hit this guy in the head, and he had to be rushed to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the end of my acting career. Audience participation, (laughs) whether they like it or not. Well, oddly enough... Um, the guy wound up to be into S&M and liked his <laughs> scar. And the person sitting next to him was Chuck Solomon, who I did my AIDS. <laughs> and he always said, I always liked you ever since you threw that bottle. Anyway, that's how I became a filmmaker. I was like hidden my, my um, Castro uh, street flat for like a month and said, I better figure out how to do something else. And since I love movies so much, I started taking classes at uh, City College, which I loved. Um, and the rest is history. So about what year is this? This was like 76. So 70, San Francisco in 1976. There's a lot of word pictures that come into my head. You were there. Tell me what it was like. Was it the movie Milk? No. I mean, it was really fun, but it was kind of... I, I mean, there really was constant creative and sexual energy. And um, the thing I loved about it for where I was standing was the communes. You know, there was a commune for food. There was a commune for theater. There was a commune for this. And we were creating some sort of alternative reality. I mean, the interesting story (laughs) of that, you know, when when Armistead had his his things in the newspaper, we hated them. (laughs) We really did. Oh, really? (laughs) We thought they were so straight (laughs) and so bourgeois. And and Harvey Milk, who I got to know, um, my roommate, Teddy Matthews, who's in this uh, movie Word is Out, who was a big radical queen, he used to call Harvey Marvy Cream <laughs> because he thought he was such a sellout. He was kind of an assimilationist, yeah. was the thought. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the whole picture that has emerged from years, years later is kind of, you know, it's semi-accurate, but it doesn't go through the real specifics of what people really were like. I mean, we were you know, people were pretty radical back then, and, you know, sex was everywhere, too. I mean, you know... You'd have sex three or four times a day, and you'd always, you know, the VD clinics became like social gatherings, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh, you? <laughs> Which is not to, I'm not saying it's a great thing, but that's just the way it was. It's, it's how it was. That's how it was. One of my favorite um, moments in the, the 70s years that you chronicle in here is a disagreement you had with Harvey over the issue of gay assimilation I, I around did. the times the Briggs Initiative was uh, on the ballot. The Briggs Briggs Initiative was an initiative that would have banned gay people from being teachers, and it was very horrible, and um, we all fought it, and um, Harvey and I had a huge fight about it, and everybody considers Harvey a big radical, but 
in this case, he was not. And um, this is the thing about Harvey Milk, too. He's become St. Harvey Milk, and everybody's like, what would Harvey do? And like, you don't even know what he'd do. And honestly, if he lived, who knew what he would, would have happened? But um, he wanted everybody that year in the parade to tone it down and not to go and drag or not the leather queen should not wear leather or anything. I said, well, what's the point of being who we were if we can't be who we are? You know, and um, so we got into this huge battle. And according to Danny Nicoletto, who lived there, like the veins were popping out of both of our. <laughs> <laughs> and I was young back then, too. So, you know, um, he won the battle, of course. He always did. And um, but he was, you know, looking back, I, I, his point was well taken. So. So that, in some ways, ties in really nicely to your first film, Unity. Um, so first of all, you were getting film developed at Harvey's Camera was, Store. I was getting film developed at Harvey's Camera Store, and, and I, was, I took a three-month uh, trip to Europe. We could do the, that back then on you know, URL palaces and Icelandic airlines and next to nothing. Um, and I was taught in San Francisco how to live on next to nothing, which is great. And the Briggs Initiative was popping up back then, and so I went to Dachau, the concentration camp, and shot all this footage of what it looked like. And then I had this brainchild of creating the story of two men that met during that time and then were thrown into the concentration camp. So it became like a 15-minute short black-and-white silent film with musical uh, a soundtrack. Um, I shot, there was a big cabaret sequence. I shot the cabaret sequence. I had syphilis the day I was shooting it. Yeah, you were literally in a fever dream. I was dream. sweating. Like, and I was like, oh my God, you're so into this. <laughs> <laughs> and I had like had gotten my dose of penicillin like the day before. <laughs> so, um, but it was, it, it, it turned out to be a really lovely, wonderful film. And it was actually used at benefits against the Briggs Initiative. And some pretty high-powered people, Tom Luddy at Zoetrope saw it and absolutely loved it and programmed it at the, the San Francisco Film Festival. And, you know, this is a little Super 8 movie that I made for $250, you know, which is just goes to show, you know, fire in the belly is the most important thing. So what was the, the filmmaking world in San Francisco like at that point? And this ties into uh, your founding of the Gay Film Festival. It was, which... you know, everybody was very cooperative, creative. Um, I knew Artie Bresson. I got my first case of crabs from Artie. <laughs> 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 um, who did, who was a, a big mover and shaker there. Um, Rob Epstein was doing, you know, uh, Word is Out with Peter Adair. I mean, there was just a whole wonderful collective communal spirit of making movies that related to our lives and that weren't Hollywood product. And, you know, that's how the Gay Film Festival came together is these people that I met at Harvey's store and we'd all talk about our films and like, well, why don't we put on a show? So it was very Mickey and Judy and we showed the movies on a bed sheet and the, the splices would break in the films. And But people came and, you know, there were like 200 people in a place that fit 100 and Harvey was there and, um, you know, the, the spirit, which still exists to a certain degree at Frameline, um, I mean, that's what it turned into was frame line. But people love being there. So I'm trying to remember, was it during the production of Whatever Happened to Susan Jane where you were um, doing post-production in the space where Gilbert Baker was also making the No, it was actually Strange Fruit. Strange Fruit, right. Yeah, it was a show that I did with a bunch of my movies and skits and everything, and it was all about gender, uh, you know, uh, 
combating gender stereotypes and you know freaks and fags and fabulous stuff. Yeah, years and, before we had a lot of the terminology. Yeah, about before we had the lot of and, yes, and gender binary and trans and blah, 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 blah. Um, but um, it was at three thirty Grove Street and up on the roof, um, up on the roof, um, Gilbert was doing the flag. So, and what was amazing to me about Strange Fruit was that you took the title from the Billie Holiday song we about did. lynching uh-huh. and you sort of extended the metaphor right. further to talk about the gay community. Yes. We got a little critique about that because some people did think that it was a little bit um, presumptuous to take a song about racism and turn it into something about homophobia. But it's San Francisco. You get criticized for everything here. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about um, what I think most people who know your filmmaking career know you from, which is Whatever Happened to Susan Jane, which um, I was reminded listening to the audiobook that the origin of that was a little bit some found footage of like a mental hygiene film from the 50s. It was a, a film that I found in the trash, and um, I had was going to use it as what's called slug, which is just stuff you use to, to, to buy time in film. And I projected it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so cute. And, and I had had it for a couple of years before. And then my dad called and said, you know, they're getting rid of the film department at NBC. Do you want some free film? And I'm like, free film? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I got shipped all this VNX news film that was way past its expiration date, but still, still was it be able to use and created this story in record time um one of the writers was a, actually a critic here at the chronicle named edward guffman was one of the writers yeah. and um and you know had this huge party scene which i sort of um was inspired by the party scene in midnight cowboy and there were like 500 people that came all dressed to the nines at project arto and it was wild and crazy um i had a my teacher at san francisco state bill jersey at the time was the second camera and he got so into we had a live sex act on stage between a man and a woman, and he got so into shooting the woman that he forgot to put film in the camera. <laughs> and your joke of the from that was he was shooting blanks, <laughs> quite literally, quite literally. Um, but it was you know it was a creation of the times, and it was the day that we shot the, our first day of shoot. Ronald Reagan had just been elected president, so who knew what was going to happen? And the dark days of AIDS were you know, around the corner, but none of us knew that. And it was kind of the last, um, you know, it was the party before the plague film. And really, to this day, people love it because it really represents a San Francisco that did exist and no longer does exist. And um, people kind of really pine for it. And even though it was kooky and wild and and offbeat and and, um, avant-garde, it was still very innocent. I mean, there was an innocence to the scene, and it was also during the new wave days, the punk new wave days, which were really tremendous here. I mean, there was a lot of artistic energy, and it wasn't just gay energy. It was everybody, and um, so it's really a time capsule of that. I love your descriptions of the punk scene in that era, too, is the 70s are becoming the 80s as AIDS is looming. Um, a lot of people don't know that Cafe Floor had this great identity. With it was Monday nights that was the punk Monday. Night then. Okay, Monday nights was the big night, and of course Monday for punks would be a big night because most of us didn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you'd go to the Cafe Floor, and there'd be punk night there, and Coco Vega would be there, and 
dancing wildly, and then you go to the stud afterward, and it was punk night at the stud, and we'd pogo our, our little tuchuses off all night long, and um, there was just something liberating to the punk thing. I loved being a punk rocker. It was so much fun, and, um, you know, it was, it was kind of a reaction toward the whole hippie thing, which I love, too. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. consider them mutually exclusive. It was They just were both, you know, particular movements of their particular times. Yeah. So you keep making films during the onset of the AIDS epidemic. Yes. Um, you stay making films through the 90s. Yes. And, and to me, the most important work that I did was during AIDS. I mean, it was, to me, um, I made a film called Chuck Solomon Coming of Age, which was one of the first documentaries from a gay perspective ever made. And it showed at the Berlin Film Festival. It showed on foreign television all over the place. And it was a, a depiction of its man, Chuck Solomon, who was the head of Theater Rhinoceros. And he had AIDS. And his story was his brother had died of AIDS and his lover had died. And then he, and then so we threw this big party for him. And it was like the, a memorial for him be, while he was still alive and could enjoy it. And it really showed how we as a community here in San Francisco really came together and the love that happened and the fact that women who were lesbian separatists came to the aid of their gay brothers and. You know, it was a, a real antidote to what we were seeing about AIDS, which is very grim. So I'm the most proud of that movie of any. And, and mm-hmm. it also allowed me to come out as HIV positive, you know, in 1987, which is most people did not do that. Uh, yeah. You know, it, and I would go to the screenings and I would say I'm positive. And, you know, I, it was a role model for other people and to see that you can be positive and that you can still have a thriving artistic and life and um i just to me that time was it, it was the best of times and the worst of times and I, I really am so thrilled that i was able to live through that the descriptions of the community coming together of just what the climate was like as the kind of gay eras transition from the 70s to the 80s i think are among the most intimate and personal that I've, I've read of histories of this era and I've read quite a few of them. Well also it's like I did talk about my friend Tommy Pace and it's like when you read AIDS stuff everybody becomes a hero. First people with AIDS become heroes and it's like some of them were not. I mean they were heroic in their fight but you know my friend Tommy who was the funniest person in the world turned into the meanest person in the world. I mean, I always say to people that when I see people die, they either go up spiritually or they go down. And I've si- I saw that, you know, Tommy went way down and it was real. And, you know, I was happy to, to talk about that because it's, you know, there's such a nostalgia about AIDS right now that, you know, we were all wonderful and everything, you know, even though it was horrible, we were all great and everything. And we that didn't exist either. So. You, you talked about that with me recently about something that was depicted on the show Pose, uh-huh. um, that you felt like it was too much of a Hollywood version well, of, it is, of ACT UP. And it also is reinventing history in the fact that the ball scene did not was not active in ACT UP. You know, and it's like the whole St. Patrick's Day thing where they're like at the head of it and, and doing it. You know, it did really piss me off because I get that people want to see inclusion and diversity and stuff, but it's really not what the history had. And it's like there were mostly white people in AIDS in ACT UP, and they were the ones that, that did that particular action. And there were actually several people on Facebook that were part of that action that were pretty upset by that whole thing. Right. You know, I get 
what they're trying to do, but I don't particularly like it sometimes. So let's talk about the transition from filmmaking to impresario. So nineteen ninety five is your first event as a yeah, producer. I had done a movie called Sex Is, which was uh, actually a huge hit and it showed like sixty uh, cities in America and around the world and um, was like the fifth highest grossing documentary that year, broke box office records everywhere. And so I thought, ooh, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, it's going to be easy to make movies after that. It wasn't. And every grant that I applied to, I did not get. And there was a particular instance I won't go into, but it just completely turned me off to the film world and grant writing and the politics around that. And so I was like, well, what are I going to do now? <laughs> and I'm like, ooh. Well, um, I know how to put on a show. So um, a group called The Sick and Twisted Players was around back then, and they were doing The Sepford Wives as a, as a theater show. I'm like, well, why don't we show the movie, and they can come on stage, and we can have a big old floor show and, um, and you know, make it a wild, crazy scene like the old Susan Jane days. And that's how it started. And then Anita Manga, who was the booker, said that, why don't you get a Hollywood star? And lo and behold, Carol Lindley was the first star to come. And Carol was uh, one of the stars of Poseidon Adventure. She played Nani. And there's got to be. <laughs> she sang the got to be. After. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very funny recording of her saying, I don't want to sing that song on stage. Um, and um, so she came. It was a huge, unbelievable, sold out, wild, crazy scene. Um, so. And, of course, she was the first, and the first is always the best. And um, that was how it all started. And she remained a, a close friend and very collaborator. Very close friend. I was very, very upset of her passing uh, about a month ago. Was, I was upset to see she wasn't included in the Emmys, uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe it. But And I, I'm going to call the Oscars and make sure she's on that. But she was a very dear, sweet person. And... Uh, I did about, you know, she. We, I think we did Poseidon like three times here, once in L.A. She was part of the John Waters Christmas thing. She has a wonderful the story in the, the book where John and her are having dinner, and John is, you know, being snarky about the Tate murders because he, you know, he was big with Leslie Von Houten, and Carol uh, told him straight to his face. She said, you know, I don't find any of this funny, so please let's change the subject. She had been close to Sharon Tate, right? She had been close. To, the, the amazing thing about seeing, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is I had several of my stars were close to Sharon Tate, and they all said she was the, they called her magic. Yeah, Barbara Parkins Barbara uh, Hall, from uh, yeah. Valley of the Dolls. I, I was at that event, too, I yeah, think. Yeah, she called her magic. Supposedly, she was going to be at the house. It was funny. I read an article the other day that said if all the people that were supposed to be at the house the night of the, the, yeah. the, the murder, you could fill a football field with uh, Jacqueline, Suzanne, and Rex Reed also said they were supposed to be there um, at the house. Which is not funny, but it's funny. Yeah, no, but it's, uh, it's true. A lot, a lot of them claim that. Anyway, she was... She, Carol knew everybody. She, you know, she was uh, uh, she was best friends with uh, Fred Astaire. She, she was uh, supposed to get married to John, uh, Frank Sinatra. She went out with Davis Frost for like fifteen years, and so, so she knew where all the skeletons were buried. And every time I would have a, uh, somebody, she'd call me up, and she'd give me the tea on everybody. And the thing about her that was so great is she was not a negative person at all. And and um, so she, except for one person who she detested, she would say nice things about everything. <laughs> and, and most everything she said turned out to be true. 
So who are some of the favorites that you work with? I mean, the names just blow me away. I mean, these are th- these are TCM icons. Um, Debbie Reynolds, Barbara Parkins, Tony Sandra Kurt. D. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, Sandra D., you know, somebody yesterday um, uh, messaged me and said, oh, I just finished your book, and I loved it. And um, I particularly loved this, the, the story about Sandra D. And I turned on the television, and Invitation of Life was on. And there, yeah, was I was watching that yesterday too. <laughs> so I'm like, with oh, the other gonna... Juanita Moore, as I now think <laughs> yeah. of her. I have, a, I won't even tell you that story, but it's very funny. It was not in the book. I'll tell you later. Um, but uh, you know, every time I pop on TCM, there's one of my old friends. <laughs> so we have to go down the Joan Crawford road now uh, that we've mentioned Anne Blythe, who right. you. Uh, did an event with and Blythe was Pierce. yeah was the co-star in Mildred Pierce. She's the one John Crawford slaps. Yes, she was. Um, and I would like to transition into asking about some of the more difficult stars <laughs> you worked with, Mark Eustace, darling. <laughs> dot dot dot. Daughter dearest. <laughs> Daughter dearest. Tina you, darling. <laughs> you did an event with. Christina Crawford, the author and uh, stepdaughter of Joan Crawford, who wrote Mommy Dearest. And that is, I think, one of the most laugh-out-loud funny chapters in the book. Not only did I do an event, I did a five-city tour with her. And the event at the Castro I did with her was actually pretty great and was what inspired me to do the five-city tour. She turned into such a monster on the road. It was unbelievable. I mean, she was... It was scary sometimes, and um, she had, by the end of the tour, which I wound up losing a lot of money on, um, she had me, like, cleaning up popcorn off the theater floor. Excuse me? Like mother, like daughter? She actually had you cleaning up after her? Yeah, and I'm, like, thinking, clean up that mess, and I'm, like, thinking, but how? And um, she's like, you figure it out. Oh, my. Wow. My favorite one was when she met my dad. And um, it was in New York. We did a show at Town Hall with Lipsinka, who did, it wound up doing that thing that she did at Town Hall for years and years and years later. Um, but anyway, um, she met my dad, and, and uh, she had just been on Liz Smith on TV, and Liz Smith hates her, hated her. Yeah, because Liz was friends with very Joan, Joan, if I'm remembering. Very pro-Joan. So it was, it, you know, it was, it was an intense interview, and... Um, my dad's, you know, I introduce and he's, and my, my dad says, boy, it must have been really difficult to do that interview. And Christina turns to him and goes, Mr. Hustis, after working with your son, nothing is difficult. <laughs> and I'm wow. like, you fuck. <laughs> you. <laughs> it's fine. We're not laughing. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get flashbacks when you watched Feud and suck? Uh, uh, well, Christina's not portrayed. She's in not Feud. really portrayed. You know what? I felt sorry for her in the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I went to uh, Patty Duke's um, funeral in Idaho, and Christina has a bed and breakfast like uh, ten miles where Patty. Right. So I was at the bed and breakfast where I was staying, and the woman comes up. And she said, "Hi, wh- wh- why are you here?" I said, "Oh, I'm at Patty's funeral." She goes, "You know, we have another celebrity that lives around here." I said, "Who?" And they're like, "Have you heard of Christina Crawford?" <laughs> I'm like, have I heard of Christina Crawford? <laughs> and then we went into like this 10-minute, the woman said exactly the same things that I thought about her. Um, wow. So, and, and that's kind of the only dishy chapter. The John Waters chapter is a little bit critical. And a great thing happened the other day. I'm driving back from my cabin in the woods. The phone rings. And 
somebody comes on. He's like, I, I, I need to know how to pronounce Pierre's last name. I'm like, who is this? He goes, it's John. I'm like, John who? He goes, John Waters. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. I was trying to read somebody else. He goes, but I read your book. I even bought it. And then he went, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, um, I hope you don't hate me. He goes, no, I thought you were really fair to me. I and, thought you were fair. And I, that made me really happy that he did that. And, you know, to his credit, I mean, that's, was, that was something for him to say that. Yeah, and I, I, when I interviewed him, he gave you credit as the originator of, uh, with him of a John Waters Christmas. And I was the originator, and he's made a cottage industry. And good for him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love him. I love them all. I mean, it's like, you know, the... Because none of them were really mean, you know? And, and also, it's like, I, I think the trick to my, what I do is that I treat them as people, you know? There's no separation there. And because most of them, I watch all their movies before their clip reels, it's like they understand that I know their careers inside and out, and they love talking about all that stuff. And most, you know, a lot of ex, you know, stars or whatever, they don't get that where they live you know they're treated pretty awfully and people you know tend to dismiss anybody that hasn't made a picture and blah blah years yeah or it's whatever. a cutthroat industry when yeah. they, you're only as as big as your last box office your last numbers. box office and so they really revel in the fact that i understand that stuff um i have a really quick tony curtis story we i did him and he loved the clip reel that i did and so he called me like two years later and asked me to do a clip reel for his touring show i'm like god he's not that well i don't know how he's going to tour but we did this thing we worked two months on and it was great i love it i love editing that's my dad's gene and um so afterwards it was like i never saw any dates for the tours and then um one day i got a fedex package from henderson nevada and it was this lithograph of tony curtis's out of the blue i'm like oh this is kind of weird and then the five days later he died and it wound up that they showed the clip reel that we did at his funeral. Wow. And all the time we were doing it, we were doing his cinematic obituary. Wow. And 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 the DVD of that is one of the things that he asked to be put in his coffin. What an incredible tribute. No, it was great. To you and, uh, and the tribute you made to him. Uh, you know, and even though I don't know these people for a long time, I have a great deal of warmth for them. I mean, it was like when Sandra D died, I was like, really bawling because she was such a sad person you know and you know even though she was a drunk she was really the, you know the sweetest drunk I ever met and you know god they because they're artists you know they suffer they do suffer and they, they t- every they're much more vulnerable to to their atmospheres and what they go through yeah and uh, it occurs to me a lot of the <coughs> people that you did shows for were people that it was a major deal for them to suddenly have 2,000 people um, after I, I had that decades. several times since, like, you know, Barbara Parkins, when, you know, she took her bow, she goes, where have you been all my life? Who are you people? <laughs> <laughs> and Patty McCormick was like, I wish you were all casting Patty directors. Patty the Bad Seed <laughs> right. McCormick, yeah. little Rhoda Penmark with the blonde pigtails. Oh, I wish I had been around for that one. She was great, and she sounds more like Car- uh, Carmela Soprano. She's from... Brooklyn. And she was on The Sopranos. She was on The Sopranos. She has a very thick Brooklyn action. She's actually coming to my L.A. event. Um, I'm doing an event on October 26th at the Blank Theater for the audiobook. And uh, Bruce Valanche is, is hosting. And Terry Hatcher is going to read the Carol Lindley. I'm doing a whole oh, how fantastic. tribute to Carol Lindley. And Patty's coming. So it's all going to be great. 
I wanted to ask you about the Castro audiences. I mean, you've talked about stars saying that they're unlike other audiences anywhere else in the world. You have been on many sides of that. You're a enthusiastic audience member at a lot of things I see you at, and you've produced events, and you've been a filmmaker that screened at the Castro. Is there any way you can sum them up? Well, uh, John Waters has that quote where he says it's the Radio City musical for gay people. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it is. There is nothing like it. And, you know, like Quentin Tarantino says that it's one of his favorite theaters in the world. They all, Paul uh, Thomas Anderson always comes and previews stuff there. It's, there's nothing like it. I mean, we have such a gift in San Francisco in the Castro Theater. There is no other place in the whole world that I've been to that's like it. And, you know, sometimes I get really cynical and think, oh, this goddamn barn I'm working in. It's like, <laughs> not another show. And then I just have to step back and say, how, so how, I mean, they love it when the organ player plays, you know? I mean, where, are, where else does that happen? It's, and, um, you know, when you have a, a you know a sold-out house of fourteen hundred people all in the same wavelength, it's like magic. It really is like magic. So you haven't retired from your impresarioing, have you? Might we see uh, another Marcuse? Maybe, disavance? maybe not. I, I'm enjoying not the pressure of not doing them. I really hate pitching. I mean, for every like um, person you saw in the marquee, there'd be ten people that said no. Um, so that part I really hate. Like I did um, Kim Novak like uh, almost two years ago. Was, and that was a smash. That uh, sold up yeah, pretty quickly he, from but what I remember. her manager called me to do it. I mean, that was really, I mean, if there are any managers of big stars out there and you want to call me, I'll do your show. You heard but, it here first. <laughs> Jane Fonda, are you listening? <laughs> but... You know, just the drudgery of doing all that stuff. I love producing it, and, I, you know, once I get it going, but I just... And, and people did get cynical, and, and there were other people that came to the caster that kind of sort of, I wouldn't say stole my thunder, but, you know, I became the old, tired person there, and I just didn't want to be that person. And I wanted to have a life, and, you know, I live in the country now half half the year, and I live in a small mountain cabin, and I've learned how to fish, and I... Forage for morel mushrooms and so much. I, I, yeah, <laughs> you should see me with the ranch. The calamity Jane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm wild with the with the ranch. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, and I love it. I really do. I mean, it's just it makes it. It's just peaceful, and I don't have to deal. With, you know, and show business is crazy, and there's everybody with all their their agendas, and you know all the. It just it becomes overwhelming. So I I will only do it if it, if it's joyful and and a, a project that comes from a deep place in my heart. Mark, we want to close with our ten rapid fire questions. Uh-oh. So clear your head. Just say the <laughs> scared first scared of this. <laughs> say the first thing that comes into your mind, which I'm sure will be very difficult. <laughs> yeah. I know how retired my diminished sixty four turning sixty five year old mind. <laughs> Um, no, I will not comment on that. Just, <laughs> just go with honesty here. Um, ocean or mountains? Obviously mountains. Mountains, where your cabin is. Yes. Favorite San Francisco set film? Vertigo, of course. Wonderful. Um, the star you would still love to work with? Dead or alive? Um, let's do both. Dead first. Dead would be Liz Taylor. Uh, yes. <laughs> let's make that happen. Alive, alive. alive would be Sophia Loren. Wow. That would be incredible. Um, what do you love most about living in your neighborhood in San Francisco? Um, my neighbors. 
who the ones that have lived there forever and ever. I've lived in the same apartment for um, since 1980 and have rent control and know people in the neighborhood that I adore. And what do you love most about the cabin? I love the knotty pine. <laughs> <laughs> who would you want to play you if there was a film of your book? Carol Lindley kept saying Michael J. Fox. I'm like, no way. But I think Soupy Sales, but he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> that could be an obstacle. Could be. <laughs> so given your mother's career, what would your burlesque name be? Mar- Mar- Marquina. <laughs> <laughs> the Gypsy Princess. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite documentary that is not one you made? Um, there were a couple. Shoah, um, uh, uh, Paris is Burning. Times of Harvey Milk. Best meal in San Francisco. Uh, best meal in San Francisco would be. Hmm, that's a that's a tough one because I don't go out and eat a lot. Um, the burrito place that I go to on the corner of Eighteenth um, and Valencia. That is a wonderful answer. We have a long-running string of asking people about burritos here at the Chronicle. So thank you for anticipating that. And and I've eaten at a lot of burrito places. It's the best one. Where is the best remaining dollar store in the Bay Area? Oh, that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, there are two. The one across the street from what used to be Thrift Town on on Mission Street. But also um, the one on 16th Street is great. And I'll tell you, I have gotten so much of my sets from dollar stores. And I absolutely (laughs) worship dollar stores. And then there's also, you know, um, the Japanese one, which which I like, too, the... um, uh, one in Japantown? Yeah, yeah, what's it called? You, oh. you know, out there, you know, but it's not a call-in show. I'm blanking. <laughs> right. Um, so what's your current state of mind in a sentence? Peaceful. Peaceful. Mark Eustace, impresario of Castro Street, thank you so much for being here today on the Daybook Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure having you. Mwah. <laughs> You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Tony Bravo and his guest, Mark Hustis. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is Midnight Special by Ease Jammy Jams. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.